Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rokraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today is an exciting day because we'll be recapping the New York Film Festival. The two weeks are over, we are sad, we are a little relieved just from all of the movie going we've been doing, and it's all stellar, which is why it's so exhausting, but... We had an amazing time. We can't wait to talk about it. And to do so, we have another guest who joined us there at the festival, returning guest, Bennett Prosser. We're so excited to hear about your experience, your journey to New York, and what you thought of all of the movies you saw. Yeah. Hi, my fellow New Yorkers for five days. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I kind of can't believe in retrospect that I went and that I made it and made a little vacation out of it. And Got to see both of you, Sophia. I haven't seen you in person for a decade, approximately. I know. I think we were well, trying since to... that Oscar party. Since <laughs> since the Argo Oscar party. My God, cursed. It was a great experience, and it's a great festival. It's an interesting festival to go to as a traveler, as someone from out of town. And I'd love to like talk about that more, about just like our general experiences at the fest. But it was a lot of fun, and I'm really glad I did it. Yeah, it was so good to see you. And I'm so glad that you got to spend, what, five days, you said, in Mm -hmm. New York and see a bunch of movies at the festival. And it really was such a good lineup, I think, this year, just across international cinema, some of the bigger titles that we had, documentaries. But yeah, I think just to start, I would love to know what it's like to attend the festival as someone coming in from out of town, because we live here. So our experience is so different. It's like you just go to a screening after work one night or you know you just hop on the train and go back to your apartment so I would love to hear more about that and what that experience was like for you and also as a first timer this was your first New York festival and we've done it the past couple years so I think that initial rush and yeah curious about that aspect of it too because we went to Venice and Mm -hmm. I want to hear like similarities differences yeah I feel like Sophia what you were saying about how you just go after work and then go home. The mm-hmm. fest feels really built for that. It feels like yeah. a fest for New Yorkers who have day jobs and not as tailored to like a destination vacation type of festival, you know, like an all day mm-hmm. type of thing. Like most of the screenings are in like mid afternoon at the earliest. There were a handful that were a little earlier, like I think. I was able to get one or two that were at noon, but most everything was pretty late in the day. So I had all my mornings were very free to kind of get brunch and go around the city. But I think that some other fests I've been to some more, uh, at least the Wisconsin Film Fest that I'm used to, that I go to every year here in Madison, is kind of an all day event. Like there are screenings that start in the morning and they're kind of the, some of the big tickets are in the morning. I think maybe just like the audience is different in that way, but yeah, I think so. That was that was one thing that was different in terms of scheduling it. That I saw two or three movies a day, as opposed to in Venice, it was usually three or four. It was just more packed into the day, and it started a little earlier. I would have seen as many as I could in a day in New York, but based on how it's scheduled, you really can only get to maybe three if you have you know all day open. So that was one thing that was interesting. I think it is totally doable and still very fun for someone traveling, especially. There were things that I didn't even think about while I was planning it. Like, it did not cross my mind that there would be Q&As or that the filmmakers would be present in Venice the in, at, like, the public 
public, public, public bad theater. <laughs> it was, <laughs> you know, there was no introduction. There was no, nothing before, nothing after. You just sat down and you watched the movie. As opposed to, you know, down the street in Venice, you have the big gala with the red carpet. And then you sit down and you watch it with the filmmaker sitting behind you. But at New York, uh, I only got to nine screenings in my time there. And I think at least six of them had someone from the production giving an introduction there and sitting in the audience and then doing a Q&A afterwards that I didn't know that I was going to be in the same room as Yorgos Lanthimos when I saw Poor Things. Mm-hmm. So that so I was just freaking out. So it, as a as a, you know, civilian who doesn't get to see that type of thing that often, it was it was really really exciting. One thing that was different that maybe was a New York crowd and I think you have told me about this is that the the audience is vocal and uh, opinionated and I think we thought this might be because of how long the standby lines are but the audience is also late which was the biggest thing to me 15 minutes into the screening people are still trying to find their seats and I mean tell me if this is true that it's people from standby getting in super late I think if you're going to big screenings like at Alice Tully Hall which is the main theater for New York Film Festival, those standby lines can go on forever, as you saw, I'm sure, when you were going in, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, they start screenings late at New York Film Festival, and people come in late. It's kind of, it goes along with what you were saying earlier, I think, about it really feeling like a cultural event for New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. Like, they come after work, or they get tickets to go with their friends on a weekend, where it isn't this, it's not where a group of journalists from all around the country goes to the festival for the entire time because it is such a long festival too. So I think, yeah, it's, it's funny how they do, they start late, but those screenings, I think we are probably the best festival for Q and A's because I always feel like I take that for granted until I go to other festivals. And I notice that there either isn't a Q and A for everything or only select screenings have them. So like big premieres will have them, but at New York Film Festival, third or fourth screenings sometimes will have a Q&A built in, which I think is just, it's a really cool thing, I think, too, for like film students and for even just film fans who go to these things, they can hear from the filmmakers. So yeah, I'm glad that you got to got to experience the Q&As, too. It's always fun. And that spotlight box. What that did you think fun. of that? Wasn't that a cheesy little thing? I love it. Oh, it was great. Yeah. They're just sitting in there in like a little box seat in the balcony mm-hmm. I think the first I didn't know it was a thing and then the first time that it happened for me was for the lead actress of Fallen Leaves uh-huh. was sitting up there after she had done the introduction and I think I turned and I was like oh and like like sort of like <laughs> applauding really happily but yeah so it was fun and I th- also for anyone who has not gone before or doesn't live in New York that would consider going, um, having a friend who is a member of Lincoln Center is very important to be able to get tickets. As the tickets come out, I was watching them keep kind of ticking down. They would, you know, the big stuff would change to like limited seating as the first waves of membership started putting in their, um, their orders and then things starting to get to standby that by the point it gets to the wide release of tickets for the main public who hasn't bought a pass already to get their ticket most of the screenings that i would have wanted to go to were at standby Mm -hmm. so that is definitely a plus 
The ticketing system is strange for New York, the like online system at least, because they also add additional encore screenings. Mm -hmm. So again, that's something that I think is really nice when you live in the city, because you can just check your email and see that they've added something new and you can go. But if you're coming in from out of town, you're going to want to plan and have a schedule to maximize your time. So yeah, I definitely think having someone who is a member or who has access to tickets, who can go physically to the box office for you, that's another option, is definitely a good good strategy if you're coming in from out of town. Yeah, sometimes it's a mad rush for those later tickets, but if you're lucky, that feeling is incredible to know that you're seeing something premiere or mm-hmm. you got in over so many people. Mm. Because the standby line is so questionable sometimes. Like, a few people will get in, or 20 people will get in. We had a long line for the encore screening of Poor Things, and I was there for almost two hours. And I was like, there is no way in hell that I am getting in 40, 30, 40 people deep. And, like, four people got in. But after an hour, I was like, I'm here. I'm not going to get out of line when everybody else around me is also questioning whether they should stay or go. Mm-hmm. But it's still fun, and you interact with all of the people around you, for better or worse. You know, you talk about the audience and how they're vocal, and usually they're great because they're so into wanting to see these movies, be it film students at NYU or Juilliard students next door, or people who have lived in the city for 20, 30 plus years because they have experience in past festivals and then all they want to do is talk about all the movies they've seen. It's really cool. Let's get into some of the films that we saw at the festival. We will note that some of these, quite a few of these actually, we will be saving for in-depth conversations later in the season as they might be big awards players. So we'll just touch on them, cover what we saw So the way that New York Film Festival does things, there's always an opening night film, a centerpiece screening, and a closing night film. This year, those films were May-December, Priscilla, and Ferrari. May-December was my favorite film of the festival. I loved it so much. This is Todd Haynes' most recent feature starring Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, and Charles Melton. We've talked about this on our Cannes episode Because, Nick, I know that you were a big fan of it. But I will just say that I was really blown away by this movie. And I cannot wait to dive into it on a full episode where I can spend ample time talking about Haynes' use of the Kubrick Zoom. I'll just start there. I'm so glad you liked it because I assumed you would after Can. It's funny, campy. It's a great character study and... Yeah, I can't wait to see this again at Newfest, also in New York. But yeah, wow, what an opener. It's still kind of surprising me that they chose this. But it, I think, works as a New York film, too, in how we see people and interact with people every day and what Natalie and Julianne are doing in the movie specifically. Mm-hmm. It's a poisonous little film, and <laughs> I love it so much. It could be my favorite film of the year when everything is said and done. And I will say, I didn't see any of these three at the festival. I'm kind of very sad about that. But I know they'll be out soon enough. So I'm still very excited to see Priscilla and Ferrari. What did you think of those? I loved Priscilla. I'm a big Sofia Coppola fan. And this was, I think, just a really beautiful 
exquisite film, really, talking about a person from history who has always been attached to a larger-than-life character. So it's very much operating in the traditional Coppola wheelhouse of, you know, a lonely teenage girl trapped in a gilded cage. It has a lot of those characteristics that I think she gets into in some of her other works, but I was very moved by it. I read Elvis and Me, the memoir, before seeing it, and that book was so strange in its tone. I can't even properly articulate what the tone of that book is like, but Sofia Coppola did in her movie. And yeah, I really loved it, and I'm excited to talk about it more, specifically Kaylee Spaney's performance when the movie comes out. It'll be out in New York and L.A., Next week, October 27th, it's going limited, and then it'll expand in November to um, more markets across the U.S. and in other countries as well. And I'm very excited for both of you to see Ferrari and tell me what you think about it. What a journey. It's very much in the same family as House of Gucci, but directed by Michael Mann. (laughs) It's not House of Gucci in the sense that I think everyone in this film knows what movie they're in. And they're all in the same movie, which is very helpful. And I think that it helps having Michael Mann behind the camera instead of Ridley Scott making this kind of bloated prestige drama. I had a lot of fun with it. There are parts of it that really do not work. And we will talk about those when we dive into the movie further later on in the season. Because the reception to it was a little bit mixed, but the people who love it really love it. And... I think the big takeaway from it for me was just that Penelope Cruz is wonderful mm. in it. It's a great performance from her. I could totally see a supporting actress push, but there's a very violent scene oh. on the racetrack, mm-hmm. like oh. on the um, course later in the film that took my breath away. It's a lot. It's like classic man. And I think that a lot of people will like this one, despite its flaws, namely Shailene Woodley. And her accent. See, that's what I'm most excited about. <laughs> yes. Do you think that Priscilla and Ferrari were well-received in general by the New York audience? Because I remember seeing that people were kind of like surprised how well it was received in Venice. Uh-huh. But then it was a question if that was going to hold afterwards and kind of see how it goes in New York. So how, how did it play for the general audience, do you think? I think it played really well for the general audience. I know that some critics were a bit skeptical of it or felt that it was kind of slight. Coppola, maybe lesser Coppola, but from a lot of the people that I talked to and just general reception, I think it played really well to the New York crowd. Sofia Coppola is usually well received by the New York Film Festival. On the Rocks even Mm. did well at the New York Film Festival. So something like Priscilla, which is of a much higher caliber, um, was I think sort of destined to do well. But yeah, I think from the, the word of mouth was really good for it. So it did hold from Venice. And Ferrari was, I would say, rather mixed. The people who love it really love it. And other people, you could tell, sort of thought, why did I sit here? What did I just watch? Gotcha. Okay. The next film that I saw that I would love to touch on briefly is All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt. It is a beautiful directorial debut from Raven Jackson. It premiered at Sundance earlier in the year and I know is going to some regional festivals, but I thought this was absolutely beautiful. It is a poem of a movie and I, you know, I love those sorts of slow meditative films that are all about image making and evoking a feeling. And 
it's very clear, I think, through this film that Raven Jackson, she really understood the the characters that she created, yes, but also the space that they occupy and the Southern setting in the film. So I highly recommend this um, when it comes out. It was, like I said, just a directorial debut that really, really stayed with me. And I'm glad that I got to see it at the New York Film Festival because Raven Jackson is also an NYU alum, and she was very excited to have her first feature premiering at New York Film Festival, which was cool. And I saw All of Us Strangers at Telluride, but I know you two both saw it at New York Film Festival. What did you think of it? Andrew Hayes' new film with Andrew Scott, Jamie Bell, Claire Foy, and Paul Meskel. Okay, there are a few things about this movie. It's not a great way to intro my response, (laughs) but... Uh-oh. It's very beautifully made. That first shot of the horizon and the cinematography, the sun shining. Oh my God. I was so excited. The problem was that this was my first day at the festival and I had just gotten back from Europe. So my jet lag was the jet lag was intense. So hard. Which makes me so sad because my first day was Hitman and then the boy and the heron, which we'll get to. And then this. So this was an 8.30 screening, my third movie. So like 2 a.m. for you Mm -hmm. on jet lag Very late, yes. So I didn't necessarily make it through the whole movie, but I also have a problem with torture porn gay films. I think Andrew Hay loves to live in this world because it tells of such a necessary part of the gay experience and what people go through. But it is so tragic. And I mean, even the premise of the movie of this guy who gets to talk to his parents after they've died. And there is so much more to the story. But even that is heart wrenching. But it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think talking of your dead parents is like such a beautiful, moving concept for a movie, at least. It is. But it's also like a traumatic and triggering kind of thing. Mm hmm. There are just a lot. It's a complex thing of watching this movie and processing it at the same time. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a huge fan of the ending either. And, you know, thinking about it over afterwards, I just think I need to see it again. I will say that. Yeah. I feel similarly about needing to see it again. I think the it is certainly a like art as therapy kind of experience mm-hmm. for the audience mm-hmm. and for Andrew Hay. It's a pretty loose adaptation of a novel that Hay did not write himself. So it, it's not completely his own story, but I know he, in the Q and A afterwards, he talked about how uh, there are a lot of things in the film that are, were reflecting his own life and experience and um, how he used the words therapy when about talking about making the film. And you can see some of that coming across. I think for me, I, I will say I, I did like it a lot. The way that it's told, kind there's kind of two halves of the film. It's not you know split down the middle chronologically, but basically the main character, played by Andrew Scott, is either spending time with Paul Meskel or he's spending time with Jamie Bell and Claire Foy, and he kind of goes back and forth between the two um, for the most part. And I felt like I was so connected with and invested in the parts with his parents, with Jamie Bell and Claire Foy, that when we went back to the time that he's with Paul Meskel, I kind of 
was exhaling from the time with uh, with the other half and not paying as much emotional attention to the Paul Mescal half. But that is its own level of therapy and its own totally different type of thing happening. So I felt it off balance between those in terms of my viewing of it. And I think a lot of other people were kind of the other way around. The storyline with Paul Mescal kind of gets hits them really hard. So I would also like to see it again, I think, so I can pay more attention to the to the half that didn't hit as hard for me. And Nick mentioned the ending of it. The ending seems real hit and miss. Either you're sitting there kind of like, what? What's this? Or you are gasping for sobs like the woman sitting behind me. So I would love to get there next time, maybe. I'm curious quickly what you guys think of this as a potential awards player, just because it's Searchlight and it does have pretty strong response, I think, with critics. Do you guys see anything happening for this one? I can see it getting pushed in maybe adapted screenplay. I think partly because Andrew Hay adapted it himself, and I can I can see that being kind of the the swell behind it. That if if it goes somewhere, it'll it'll go for him. I think all the actors are worthy to my mind, particularly Claire Foy. Sophia, we talked about this after yes, we did. after <laughs> I saw it, um, that I think it's her best performance since The Crown and is the first time I've seen her on screen where she's not playing a character who cares about how much power they have in, mm-hmm. in the scene or over any other people or the kind of situation that they're in. I mean, it, she's not a completely passive character by any means, but she's... I don't know, it's not the point, and I feel like that's been the point of so many of Claire Foy's characters, that it was really nice to see another shade of her, and I, she's the person that I connected the most to, so I would love for her to, to get something, but I think all four of them are, are really incredible. I agree that the acting is phenomenal. I would also agree with saying that screenplay is probably its best bet, but in terms of acting actually happening, I'm not so sure. I think we would have to wait because I think poor things will be a bigger player for Searchlight than this. And next up, we have The Beast by Bertrand Bonello. Did either of you see The Beast? Let me tell you, when I was reading reviews of The Beast out of, was it Venice? I think it was Venice. Yeah. First wave of reviews, I took it off my list. Second wave of reviews, I threw it right back on my list. (laughs) Please tell me where you fell. I fall closer to the negative side of reviews for this one. I think part of it, though, is just like, this is not my kind of movie, really. The first (laughs) half of it really was. It's a very romantic French scene, like a period film almost, like a period piece, with Léa Seydoux and George Mackay. And her husband works at this doll factory, but she's sort of having this affair with George Mackay. And it's just, it's very romantic. And I really liked that part of it. And then it pivots to a different period in time where George Mackay is an incel, basically hunting Leah Seydoux Mm -hmm. down. It's a wild swing of a movie. It lost me in those moments, I would say. I'm also just, I'm not a huge science fiction person, so I definitely attached myself more to the portion of the story that was adapted from the Henry James novel, not the Bonello going wild sci-fi film. It feels, I think, like it's trying to be Twin Peaks The Return. I think that's probably the Mm. closest thing it's going for. I understand why people can like it. I found it a bit inert, I would say. But 
what I'm deciding to call it is just past lives for sickos. The whole premise of the movie is that the Leah Seydoux character, she wants to go back to her past lives via technology in the future and eliminate all of her emotions associated with those past lives. That's the general premise. Mm. So, yeah. I will say George Mackay speaking French, smash, and George Mackay speaking American, pass. I don't like those men with the translucent eyelashes. That's not really for me. Does he have hair in this one? That's okay. He does have hair, but he just, like, his look is a little too British for me. I need, like, a little little more sure. there. I think Leah works in this performance. I'm pretty mid on it, too. I was really intrigued during it at certain parts. I loved, like, the loud intro, and I was like, what are we doing? And then the pixel transition into the title card it really could have gone either way i think by the end i was a little confused but Danello was talking about casting george mckay and he said that role initially went towards gaspard uliel who died last year so they replaced Mm -hmm. him and i don't necessarily think it totally works with mckay but i think what Danello is trying to do deserves some praise but it gets a little murky and I kind of needed that explanation at the end for it to make more sense, even though it didn't totally help me. But I love that it's getting mixed reviews and that some people are calling it one of the best of the year and then others totally hate it. I don't know. Those are mm-hmm. fun sometimes and I'm glad yeah. I'm okay with it. On the other hand is Agro Drift, which we also had at this festival that I have never walked out of a movie until this quote-unquote movie. Yeah, so I did see some walkouts during The Beast, but they were minimal compared to Agrodrift, the Harmony Corinne experiment, I will call it, starring Travis Scott. This was my least favorite movie of the festival. It felt like you were just watching a video game. In all honesty, to me, it felt like a waste of my time. The script was very laughable. It felt like I was watching a video game. And I get that that's part of the point of what they're going for with this film. But I was just never on its wavelength. And I don't really know how you can be, truly. It sounded like from reviews about coming out on the other side, feeling like a different person almost because of what you experience and enjoying the comedy, not for comedy's sake, but in what it's doing. But it was a total miss for me. And then to bring things back to the positive, I saw Evil Does Not Exist, Hamaguchi's latest film. I loved this movie. When I left the theater, I had this feeling like I was floating, which I get a few times a year from really good movies. And I remember being really surprised because I hadn't heard that much about it. It had kind of a muted reception out of Venice and definitely out of TIFF. I feel like people were very, were almost mixed negative on it out of Toronto. Mm -hmm. More positive out of Venice, but I still hadn't heard a lot of people talking about it, and that really surprised me because I was just absolutely floored by this story and what Hamaguchi does with it. Basically, it's about these people who live in this village outside of Tokyo, and the way of life in this remote village is very slow. And what ends up happening is these people from Tokyo 
come to this village to establish a glamping site in order to get this COVID-related subsidy. And in coming to town, they um, have this, you know, it's like, it's almost like Parks and Rec or something from an episode of Curb where they meet with the people of the village and they're talking about where they have to put the septic tank and all of these little details of building this glamping site. And it's so clear that these people from the city have no care in the world. Like they have no interest in how this will actually affect the people of this village whose land really hasn't been polluted by any sort of outside influence from Tokyo. And the way that he plays with time in the movie mimics how climate change and climate violence works. So the beginning of the movie is incredibly slow and thoughtful. We spend maybe five minutes watching the protagonist chop wood. But then as the people arrive from Tokyo, the pace just shifts and it starts going very quickly. And then all of a sudden we have this ending that I can't explain here because I don't want to spoil it, but it it's rather abrupt, but it works, I think, as a metaphor for climate change. And I thought it was brilliant. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. And I really like Drive My Car too, but this is a totally different thing for Hamaguchi, but just, I think, further proves that he's a real master of form. And the movie's funny too. It's It's very funny and very dark. So highly recommend Evil Does Not Exist. Awesome. I wonder how much um, Hamaguchi's name off of Drive My Car will get, how wide the release it will get. Like, I, yeah. I don't know if I'll, if it'll come anywhere near me or if I'll have to get it online or, or you know, eventually streaming or on DVD later. But yeah. I'm curious to see what it's like to have a Hamaguchi follow-up in, like, Art House nationwide. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's curious to think about that, right? Because Drive My Car did so well. But other main difference between this and Drive My Car is that this is 106 minutes. So it's a tight watch. So the next one we have is Fallen Leaves. This won the jury prize at Cannes and was submitted by Finland for the international Oscar. So we think for Kurzmaki, pacing, his tone is very muted, very slow. Yet there's such a dry humor in his material and... I think he has such a stark comment on the working class here. It's also, I guess, in a way, a rom-com. Like, it's a romance story between these two people, these two workers. I would say it was net positive on this. This just isn't a movie for me. But I wasn't negative on it. I just, the entire theater was dying laughing. And I got it, but I didn't laugh at all. I, I definitely was laughing. Not the whole time. I think... Something I I liked about it was that everyone, like all different pockets of my theater seemed to laugh at different things at different moments. And there was one time where one person laughed so loudly at a joke that no one else got. And then like, I had to look it up afterwards. Like I I, like wrote it down what the joke was and then I got it. It was like a deep biblical reference. It is effectively, you know, Kurzmaki doing a, deliberately paced kind of deadpan romantic comedy i recommend i think it can do pretty well in the oscar race too i'm excited to see this and next we have inside the yellow cocoon shell which bennett and i saw bennett you can take the lead on this because you saw it before me and you're the reason why i saw it um because i heard that you really liked it so i went to another screening (laughs) and i also really liked it good okay yeah i loved it so i heard about it out of can it's a like three hour 
Vietnamese film by a debut director, which also is crazy wild. It is a very slow paced, fairly simple film and narratively it starts with there's a motorcycle crash in Vietnam that leaves a child uh, basically unharmed from the crash. A lot of the takes are up to, I wasn't counting, maybe 15 minutes long. And I do not think that there are hidden cuts in the shots. Like, there's no no way. It is gorgeous to look at. I think the three hours flew by. It's also uh, very meditative and very Catholic. And it's not necessarily interrogating Catholicism. It, it, uh, the director in the Q&A afterwards was talking about how there are parts of Vietnam that are very Catholic. He was raised Catholic and he wanted to like make a movie about that, which was interesting. And because um, I feel like there's a lot of when Catholicism is invoked in movies, it's usually things are being said about it or you're kind of mm-hmm. they're kind of poking holes in it. But so it, that was a really interesting watch. But the biggest takeaway other than just like a gorgeous meditative experience is that there are some things that are done with animals in this movie that I have no idea how they were pulled off. And they, they're not trained animals. These are like wild or like, you know, livestock style animals that somehow are doing things that are integrated perfectly into these long shots and they just continue with the narrative that it like, and there's a couple of particular one that stuck to my mind is this one with a couple of roosters that behave in a way that I can't understand if it was scripted or not, but like, I don't even know how to talk about it, but it, it was insane. So I, I recommend it. It is, I don't think it's a movie for everyone, but for me, the three hours flew by and I was really surprised when it ended because I thought there was a lot more time left. I was the same way. It's a very quick three hours. I think because I think I just got swept up in the beauty of it, really. And the the fact that this is a first feature, I really can't think of many other first features that I've seen recently that are this accomplished and self-assured. The long takes. Yeah, so confident. And it also made me think of a Pitchapong, Mm -hmm. Vera's Ethical, um, some of his movies. But... Also just entirely its own thing, which I feel like is just, yeah, it's it's definitely going to be, I think, one of my favorite movies by the end of the year, like near the top of the list. So the next movie that we have on our list is Janet Planet, which I really liked. This is Annie Baker's directorial debut. She is a pretty well-known playwright at this point in New York. She won a Pulitzer previously and she has a play off Broadway right now and this film is a very quiet film about a girl named Lacey who is about 12 and she's played by this incredible newcomer Zoe Ziegler who she's such an awkward girl who's just like going through it honestly over this one summer in western Massachusetts where she lives with her mom and this performance was one of the standouts of the year for me in terms of young actors in particular. I felt the need to like reach through the screen and protect her because she is just so wonderful. And her mom is played by Julianne Nicholson, who also delivers a very thoughtful, delicate performance as this woman who's also trying to figure out 
who she is, what her relationship with men is like, with her friends. And it's just this very, I would say, quiet, Reichardt-esque film. And I was very into it. It's very slow and not a lot happens. It's slice of life, but I thought it was really, really beautiful. And I hope it finds its audience, especially because of the writing. I think that the writing is really, really sharp and very funny. The humor is kind of dark, but that's what I really liked about it. And I think in a similar way to filmmakers like Kelly Reichert, like Joanna Hogg, it is very concerned with the details in the objects that surround the women in the film. So it looks like it's going to have a 2024 release date in theaters, but definitely keep an eye on it. I really enjoyed it. I think it will be up my alley, so I do really want to see it. This is a in the Venn diagram of all of our interests. This falls into the Bennett Sophia slow cinema okay. slice. Cool. <laughs> I would say <laughs> it's a very meditative film, and I think the slowness works in its favor of what it's doing. It's not necessarily for me. All of those things you described, I think, yeah, very quickly, I was like, that is not in my Venn diagram. (laughs) But (laughs) I didn't dislike it. I understood what she was telling. This really personal, endearing relationship between this mother and daughter. And I think it really showcases the acting so well. It was a joy to see them work together, Julianne and Zoe. So I think for people who like the sound of this, they're going to love it and... You mentioned Kelly Reichardt. I think this definitely has that like showing up feeling. But yeah, beautiful filmmaking and a great debut from Annie Baker. Definitely will be more to come. And it really does have that A24 feel to it. I feel like the audience was roaring, laughing, mm-hmm. but it's a very dry, mm-hmm. again, slow humor. But it works for the story. Yeah. The next one that you and I saw, Bennett, was Orlando, my political biography. I've never seen the adaptation of Orlando with Tilda Swinton, Mm -hmm. so I really didn't know what to expect. It's kind of a period piece mixed with documentary in showing these trans stories and in their transitions, using scenes from that novel to exemplify how they feel and how these characters really were revolutionary as trans characters when this novel was written. So I think almost in a similar way, these two movies kind of fit together I feel like they would have a similar audience for who would enjoy them but I think the vignettes work and from hearing from different as they go through different people play different characters from the novel so I think you get a good sense of that work too it's just done in a totally different way than I have ever seen before it is a really interesting kind of unclassifiable genre or kind of just like category of movie so I know it's kind of being formally classified as a documentary, which it is, but it's also an adaptation of Orlando, my biography by Virginia Woolf. But like Nick's saying, it's kind of, it's made up of a number of trans actors who basically monologue passages from the book that kind of morph into their own testimony of their life as a trans person. Uh, they, because they kind of, uh, kind of the conceit of the movie is that Orlando in um, Wolf's novel was the first or maybe an early prominent trans figure and how today's audience 
handles the the writing of that character and what it's like to read it today. It's where you both see that as representing you, you identify with it, but you also think that Virginia Woolf didn't understand trans people or uh, maybe was or wasn't uh, queer or somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum that kind of grappling with both a lot of reverence for her as an author and a character while also also kind of like accusing it as, as not understanding what it's like. Um, so it is, it's really interesting. It's written and directed by Paul B. Preciado. It's also his first feature and he's also a writer and kind of philosopher. So it, comparing it to Janet Planet in that way, it's like another person coming from outside the film world, uh, making a really interesting um, kind of case for themselves. But I did like the movie. I think it should have been maybe 30 minutes shorter. And it's not a long movie. It's like 90 minutes or an hour or, or 100 minutes. But it felt like it reached a point where I was like, this should have been like a 50 or 60 minute exercise. And it, it goes on a little long. But um, I recommend people check it out. It's a very kind of provocative work. Sideshow and Janus Films will be distributing, but this did really well at the Berlin Festival earlier this year. So it does have some big awards to its name. So I think we could still see it showing up this fall through the award circuit. I'm excited to check it out. Orlando, the Sally Potter film, is one of my favorites. I love it. So our next film, Poor Things. I talked about this in our Telluride recap, but Bennett, I would love to hear your initial thoughts on the movie and... We'll be covering it in more depth and detail later on in the season because it's, I think, sure to be an awards contender. But I'm so curious what you thought of it. Yeah, I loved it. It is what people would describe as a barn burner, I think. Mm -hmm. It was the most raucous audience I had. Multiple just rounds of applause in the middle of the movie. It really just played really well with the audience. I was most struck by how daring it is but while being really funny and in some ways being a not a narrative but it's kind of it's structured in a way that is somewhat familiar but it still is like it toes so many lines that I would clutch the arm of my chair just like afraid that it was going to say something or like go down a path that was going to really upset the audience or just be like really tone deaf and <laughs> just really dicey but every time that that comes up it finds some way to swerve and like embrace the discomfort that it's making you feel and then mm -hmm. escape that discomfort so it kind of like makes you makes you feel it for a second then it says like don't worry this movie is smarter than that we are going to play with that and and surprise you as we go so I think it's great. I think it'll do really well in the award season, definitely with critics and various guilds. I still can't picture the Academy going for it, which is such a problem. It is, there is so <laughs> much sex. Yeah. Which is great. It's very sex positive. It's very much on the sex work is work train, but it's weird enough that, even with the Academy that we have today, where something like Everything Everywhere All at Once can win, it is not the um, kind of emotional story to latch onto that that movie was. Um, it's not going to have yeah. like its 
hardcore defenders like that movie. Um, so I don't know. I'm very interested to see what happens because I can see it doing really well and just being that's great, or I can see it getting kind of shafted because it's just not to the taste of of voters. But yeah, I mean, it's it's also like it is genre, right? Like yes. it's that's another thing about it too is it's it's so so strange and that's what i love about it like i love thinking about the female gothic in literature mm. and i'll save all of my thoughts right, on that right. for the deep dive because there's just way too much <laughs> to get into there and why i think this is a perfect modern telling of that um subgenre and literature and that movement but for all of the doubt right that everything everywhere all at once had with oh like will the academy go for this that movie at its core was a family story. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That made audiences feel warm at the end of it. This is completely different. And it also, I mean, the the butt plugs of everything everywhere are tame mm-hmm. compared to what's going on here. And that's why I really liked it. And I'm excited for audiences to see it. But it's incredibly raunchy. And I don't, I don't know how that, how that will work for everyone yeah. because it's, it goes there, yep. and I I love that it does. I really love Willem Dafoe in this. Willem Dafoe, be, my secret MVP. Uh, I'm gonna be singing his praises for that performance all year. So again, congratulations, Nick, on sticking with <laughs> him and predicting him for so long. But it would be amazing <laughs> if that happened because he's he's really really good in it. I think Mark Ruffalo takes a lot of the attention between the two of them, and in, in, we're talking supporting actors. But I think Willem is funnier and. Yeah. Is, if anything, he is that kind of core family catharsis that you were mentioning that is mm-hmm. not anywhere else in the film. I am so excited for this. Screenings are selling out so quickly, so I'm dying to go as soon as I can. The next movie we'll talk about is Bradley Cooper's big opus maestro about Leonard Bernstein. I think this was a massive undertaking, and I think his control of the film, but also portraying him, massive feat. I enjoyed this movie a lot. One of my favorites out of the festival. Carrie Mulligan is just the perfect woman to play beside him. The turmoil the relationship goes through, all of the somersaults of just the mentality of what they went through and what they experienced together and... Everything from like Maya Hawk portraying their daughter to all of the technical elements. There's a scene in the middle that was so stunning. Mm-hmm. I just, I cried. Jaw was on the floor crying. Couldn't believe I was flying through the middle of a symphony. It's just astounding what he does. What did you think of Maestro? I know you've been waiting for this for so long. Can't wait to hear. I, we're going to go into this in depth mm-hmm. later on. This needs more than a five-minute spot, but generally, what did you think? Yeah, so as the resident Bradley Cooper nut on the pod, I do have a lot of thoughts on this movie. I think generally I'm really positive on it. I had a great time watching it, and I'm so interested in the way that he decided to think about Leonard Bernstein's life, because what he does is he doesn't create a biopic like this is not a greatest hits or cradle to grave biopic this is very much a marriage story and a drama about interpersonal conflict and relationships and how that defines a person alongside their work 
So if you're looking for specific moments in Bernstein's life because you're very familiar with him and you don't get them, I understand being a little disappointed by that. I really wanted to see more of the Young People's Concerts, for instance, or his Mahler re-recordings. Those details that definitely would have made a traditional biopic are not present here. And I think that can, I don't know, people can be disappointed in how it uses the music, but I thought that the ways that it used the music were actually very creative because you'll have little traces of it throughout the movie and it defines specific moments in Bernstein's life. It's a unique way to tell the story. And I think that it also shows Bradley Cooper's confidence as a director. I mean, he is swinging for the fences in this movie. It's hard, I think, to articulate just what he's trying to do with the camera. And it's very stylized. It feels like he's trying to make this kind of like epic tale about a relationship while also making sure that the camera work and the visuals are on par with a musical. So yes, we will dive into it more, but there's a lot to think about. I also just want to say that this movie is kind of deranged. Like, there are scenes and there are choices that are made where you almost just have to admire, again, the big swing. Because he is so... He's just going for it. Scene after scene. And that's fun to watch. And Nick, the scene that you're referencing at Ely Cathedral in England is gorgeous. It's one of the best scenes of the year. And it's so good that when I saw it, people stopped and applauded in the middle of the movie. Mm. Like, it was like you were watching Mahler being performed right in front of you in full. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's a beautiful movie. I think that it's definitely going to hit with the industry. I really do. In the way that you guys are talking about Poor Things not being an Academy movie or being questioning about it, this screams Oscar mm. movie. For better or worse, yeah. but I think the just how it looks even, mm-hmm. you know, the black and white, we switched to color. And again, being a period piece, being a biopic, there's a lot that goes into it. And yeah, I agree that I think it'll play very well with the Academy. I have to tell you, and I texted you this, I know, but kudos on the AARP pick with Maestro <laughs> because I do think this is going to find its audience in mm-hmm. people who are familiar with a more traditional type of Oscar movie like mm-hmm. this I think will be right right up their alley and we'll also mention that the zone of interest screened at the New York Film Festival and this is going to be a film that we will talk about throughout the rest of the season just mentioning that showed up here but this is getting very polarizing reactions as in five stars and one stars, which means that Jonathan Glazer is back <laughs> because that's exactly what happened with Under the Skin. Right. This, I think, is more positively received than that one. But just something to keep an eye on, I think, is how this performs throughout Critics Awards. And this will have a December release, so we will talk about it more then. Love Under the Skin, love birth. I've only seen birth one time with Nick in his apartment in Columbus. Oh my god. Like 10 years ago. <laughs> Another world ago. I know. I don't remember watching it. We we watched Birth and Snowpiercer back to back. What a what? double feature. I don't know why. I, I remember it very clearly though. This is very much a center of the Venn diagram movie. Yes. Which good. is exciting. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Oh yeah. I agree with that. The next one that Bennett and I saw. Bennett Got to see it twice, which is exactly how you need to consume this movie because it 
not only rewards, but it, you just need to sit with it for multiple viewings. And that is Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron, his new and potentially final feature. It starts out with this Grave of the Fireflies feeling, and I never fully felt like this was a Miyazaki film. It is just so different to anything else that he's made. And I think that's telling of the story that he's showing us and really what he wants to leave behind. And it's an emotional journey. It still has those playful characteristics like his other films. If you're going in expecting My Neighbor Totoro, leave that at the door because (laughs) you're not going to get this bubbly. Yes, there are cute characters along the way, but there are so many layers in here that you need to peel back. I really enjoyed this. Bennett, what did you think? This is a movie that I can't be objective about. If I were to be objective, I think there's stuff about it that I'm still confused about after two watches. And I think there's some level of density in the storytelling that's kind of unbalanced. It, It gets very dense at the end. But I think the ending is one of the most moving things that I've seen in a long time and I don't I don't usually go in for hyperbole but I I was like a wreck at the end of it both times and I think a lot of that comes from how he feels about the state of the world and how important to him the children are and then kind of next generation is kind of the only thing that can save us from ourselves is kind of his his MO as he goes through life a lot so what what I have said to some people is that the best way to go into the movie is to think about what we first heard about the movie when it was announced, which was when the producer, Suzuki, said that Hayao Miyazaki is making one more film for his grandson to tell his grandson that he is moving on to the next world and he's leaving something behind for his grandson. Watching the film through that lens that it is just chock full of messages that Miyazaki is trying to convey directly to his grandson and the the youngest generation of the world is a better way to watch it than trying to figure out everything that's happening and why. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a movie I can get very emotional about, but like Nick was saying, it's not like anything else that he's made. There are times when I felt like I was like, okay, this is there's definitely some Grave of the Fireflies. There's some The Wind Rises. It is set during the war. But then as it goes, it's like, okay, now it's kind of becoming spirited away. Now it's now I'm getting a lot of Howl's Moving Castle vibes. It can you you can look to all these reference points from his previous work and um, the previous work within his studio. But then it gets to the point where you're like, no, no, this is this is like nothing else. This is completely different from what he's made. And also something that people have been pointing out is that his composer, Joe Hisaishi, is back for this one. And it's a score that's not like anything he's done before. There's just a a lot of it feels like Miyazaki kind of trying to get a lot out of his system in what could be his last film. So I don't know if I can like in good conscience have anything else be my favorite movie of the year. Like, and you know, I still have a lot to see, but it's just one that I'm going to be on board with for a long time. So I'm excited for other people to see it and or how everyone can intake everything I was trying to say. I think at the very least, it is a really beautiful and visually stunning, obviously, movie to see. So I hope people see it. I had a true New York tragedy (laughs) going to see this movie where I had 
multiple delayed trains and congratulations to the lucky soul and standby who got my ticket but i'm seeing it in a few weeks so i'm very excited to see it so this has a limited release for november 22nd around thanksgiving and then wide on december 8th so we finally have dates i'm excited i can't wait yeah well to bring things down a little bit our next movie (laughs) is foe directed by garth davis this stars Paul Meskel and Sir Ronan. This was truly, other than Agro Drift, my biggest disappointment of the festival. It unfortunately just does not work on any level. Essentially, Sir Ronan and Paul Meskel play this couple in the future, and natural disaster has hit, we're in a climate crisis. And the earth is just desolate. And there's this pilot project that takes people into space to help get this new settlement ready up there for people to eventually leave earth. Oh my. You could, during the critic screening of this movie, feel the audience turn on it as it went along. You could just feel that everyone in the room just had this understanding that what we were witnessing was not good. I think Sir Ronan actually fares best with the material. Paul Meskel is overacting here. He's an actor I generally really like and am drawn to, but this felt for me like a rehearsal for his performance as Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire. There's a lot of yelling, there's the accent work, there's a lot of violence in it, pent-up energy. And I think with better direction and a better screenplay, they both could have been phenomenal in this. Garth Davis can't decide if he wants to make this a marriage drama, if he wants to make it like Virginia Woolf, or if he wants to make a sci-fi film. And what ends up happening is it becomes very muddled and ultimately laughable when the emotional twist comes. And it's based on a book by Ian Reid, who also wrote I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And I think his book's might just be unadaptable is a strong word because I know that I'm thinking of ending things did work for some people, but Charlie Kaufman is much more specific in his vision and what he wanted to do with that film. Whereas Garth Davis, I don't think was up to the task for adapting something as challenging on the page as this kind of Ian Reed thriller. Did either of you see his lion follow-up Mary Magdalene? I did not. I did not. It's been on my watch list because he made, Garth Davis made Lion, which was, mm-hmm. you know, a big deal in 2016. He won, like, the DGA award for, maybe it was their first year when they did, like, Emerging Director. Oh, I might be wrong on that. I remember he he was a, a very exciting talent that people seemed excited for what he would do next. And then he did Mary Magdalene, which was filmed and then I think shelved for years and eventually came out somewhere. And now this is his next one. But Mary Magdalene is the one, it's the Rooney Mara, Joaquin Phoenix. It's the the still of Rooney Mara smoking a cig at the, mm. like standing next to a crucifix. So I don't know. I still want to see that just for the sake of that. But yeah, I'm it sounds curious. like maybe he, maybe because this one wasn't successful, it will... Can I stop having as much hope for him going forward? We'll see. Next up, I think I was the only one to see this. The four-hour Frederick Weissman documentary. Did either of you see this? I did not. I have not I yet. want to. Of the three of us, what a what an interesting right. circumstance that you're the one who saw the four-hour. <laughs> I'm not 
super familiar with his work, but the screening was filled with his fans. Mm -hmm. And I think for people who know him, or I guess want to check something out, that is a four-hour documentary on a Michelin star French restaurant in France. It's funny how riveting it is at times. So the title is Menu Placier Les Trois Gros, and... I really like how the movie incorporates the family aspect to this restaurant. They've been running it for years and how personal it is. Every day they go through all of their clients and as they're going through them, they talk about these people as if they're their friends too. So that it's personal on so many levels. And then you get to go into the kitchen where they're thinking up these really strange combinations of foods, but that's also why they have their Michelin stars. So to see a restaurant so rooted in nature and fresh ingredients, but then seeing that translate into beautiful artwork in these dishes, it didn't feel like four hours. I think you both would really like this. Yeah, it sounds right up my alley, honestly. I'm pretty excited to see it. I feel like this movie, like I have a very clear idea of how I want to see it, which is go get coffee one morning and then do like a 10.30 a.m. screening at IFC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only Wiseman that I've seen is Ex Libris, his documentary about the New York Public Library. And that is, you know, watching a four-hour movie about a library is so incredibly up my alley. So I might be kind of biased based on how much I loved his one other film I've seen, but I have had his previous films, uh, at least from the past decade or so, like he did ones on Berkeley and Jackson Heights and the National Gallery. That they've, they've been on my watch list for a while, but again, it's just hard to find the time to set aside for them. But I am very excited about this. For people who don't know who this director is but you love TV shows recently, this is not The Bear. The Bear Mm. is very high anxiety. (laughs) I haven't even seen it, and I'm scared to see it because of that feeling that it gives you. It's fun, Or that I've heard. This is not that. Everyone is nice to each other. There's no yelling in the kitchen. There is at one moment, but it's not the norm. And I think that makes this movie very pleasurable. And, you know, you're not coming out of it sweating because, you know, they had to get these dishes out. It's a very serene, somewhat meditative watch. Again, it's four hours. It kind of has to be. And so I saw this. This was my, like, big foodie day. I was so excited (laughs) because after this, I saw France's Oscar submission, The Taste of Things. This one, Best Director at Cannes. I was so excited. This movie has gotten so many raves and it has that similar vibe that feel good food is love you can really tell that Trenan Hung the director is not only connected to history but loves food and the preparation of food and puts so much care into the construction of this movie I thought it was just an exquisite film if you love food definitely go see this movie because the way that they talk about not just food but like the sensation of eating and the experience of that is just so specific and very French. It makes so much sense. I think that France selected this as their international feature submission for the Oscars because 
it's just such a wonderful experience. And it's, yeah, it's just warm. And I loved Juliette Binoche in this movie. And I feel like it's going to be a real hit when people discover it. Not in terms of, like, box office, but I feel like it's just the type of nice film to put on or to go see one afternoon that, I don't know, I got really emotional watching it, too. I was very moved by it. I've heard the... um the director get floated as a potential spoiler for the quote-unquote international director slot in Best Director mm-hmm. at the Oscars, that when people see this movie, they like your reactions, everyone seems to be in love with it and just have such warm feelings towards it that it could be something that kind of like bubbles up or just stays and, and kind of surprises us later on. I'm thinking like... I know it's not, it doesn't seem like a screenplay movie, but I'm thinking like the worst person in the world showing up in original screenplay mm-hmm. type of thing where it's just like, there's a lot of passion for it that I'd be interested if it kind of shows up somewhere outside of international feature. But I think even just international features, it sounds like a great candidate there. Well, on that point, one thing I have been noodling on a little bit is that support <laughs> supporting actress is thin this year. Mm. And... Juliette Binoche, I would love to see it. Okay. I would have assumed that she was the lead. Is it not a two-hander? I think there are certain sections of the movie where she could be considered lead, but I think overall, I would probably say supporting. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Just putting it out there into the ether. We'll see. (laughs) See what happens. Another one that I saw was Hitman. This is Richard Linklater's newest film. I was very surprised by this movie. One, that it's such a laugh-out-loud comedy. And two, that Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona are stars. They light up the screen. They're so fun. I think Glenn Powell, I keep saying he has this really chameleonic performance. He has to be so many identities too, which makes it really fun. But this is a for everyone movie. Go with your family. Maybe not like children, but it's a great group movie. It hits on so many levels, and it's one that you can repeat viewing over and over. This is honestly one of my favorite Linklaters. That's good to hear. I mean, my favorite Linklater is School of Rock. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I'm, I'm excited to see this, though. I've heard great things about Glenn Powell and his movie star performance, which... Mm-hmm. Makes me sad that it's not getting a theatrical release if it really is, you know, that fun and people can really connect to it. So hopefully word will be strong when it does come out on Netflix so people will find it there. At the Vest, I also saw Errol Morris's documentary, The Pigeon Tunnel, which is basically a long interview with David Cornwell, better known as the author John Le Carre, where basically goes through the author's life and how his family and his time in MI6 and British intelligence kind of shaped him as a person and how he sees the world and then particularly how his writing kind of developed out of his experiences and was very directly inspired by people and events that he was a part of or that were happening in the world. So it's a very interesting watch. I had never read a John Le Carre novel. I tried to read Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy back around the time that the movie came out, but I don't think I was sophisticated enough of a reader to be able to do it at the time, so I gave up. But 
you can watch him kind of spinning his own narrative as he's telling his stories and answering the questions from uh, Errol Morris that you kind of, uh, I love a documentary where the the subject seems one step ahead of the documentarian and, and that's kind of what it is the whole time. So it's fun. You don't need to know much going in. I think there's a lot for people who do read his books and, and know more about his life that they can get out of it. It was the last interview with David Cornwell before he died. He died in 2020, and this interview was back in 2019. So that adds an extra little bit to it that this is kind of the last thing he was saying about himself. Sophia, you saw this too? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a riveting documentary, especially for the style of documentary that it is, mostly interviews. Mm-hmm. But I I loved this man. I was obsessed with him and the mm-hmm. way that he was telling his life story. And how he connected so many of the things from his life, whether it was his job and his sense of duty or his relationship with his father, which was very fraught, and their their dynamic around money in particular and money management, I thought was fascinating. And I loved how he, how he connected those threads to his books. And I like the way that Errol Morris incorporated the footage from like the film and TV versions yeah. of his work and that kind of recreation. Usually I don't like that in documentaries, but here it really worked well for me. I think to add some color to his stories, he is just a fantastic speaker. Some of the things that he was saying, just little throwaway lines to him were profound to me. <laughs> there was a line that he had that I wrote down during the movie because I thought I can't forget this. He was talking about the Nazis after world war two And he described the German response as enforced forgetting. And I thought that was Mm. just like one of the most, I don't know, just the the way that he strings words together. I think it's brilliant. It makes sense why he's such an incredible writer. It also made me want to read his books. So I, right after this, I went to the library (laughs) right around the corner and got Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So I need to, I need to read it. But yeah. Highly recommend this when it's out in theaters for people. It is already streaming on Apple TV+. Amazing. Okay, and the last film that we saw at the festival was David Fincher's The Killer. This was a surprise spotlight screening. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival, but I thought this was so much fun. This is, of course, the story about an assassin played by Michael Fassbender And you just follow along with him throughout the film as a series of unfortunate events unfold, I will say. It is set to songs by the Smiths, which just made me laugh the entire movie. This movie is hilarious. The sense of humor is so dry and deadpan at times. And I think that the film is Fincher's most specific critique of himself possible. You can kind of read it as a metaphor for his own existence in the world and the ways that people perceive him as a filmmaker, as this type A perfectionist who has to get everything just right in sort of a maniacal way. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun watch. I wish that there was more Tilda Swinton, but overall I had a great time. Very fun, very funny. I think what Netflix did with getting the rights to this and Hitman. It is a perfect double feature in any order. I like that we got a little bit of a different Fincher vibe than we normally do, but it is still very much him. There's a voice over the entire movie, which I wasn't expecting, but as it goes, 
you kind of get hooked into it more and more. And I will say there's a fight scene that is probably in the top five fight scenes for me of all time. It's incredible. It's so gruesome. I was like, Fincher (laughs) is back, baby. It blew me away. My jaw was on the floor. I had to cover my mouth for like five minutes. I was like, how is this still going on? Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Pristine editing. Great sound work. Oh my God. Just everything. You are on the edge of your seat. Cool. I'm excited. And it's so different from the Fincher we've been getting lately. It feels more like a throwback in a lot of ways to some of his earlier work. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's very, very gnarly in terms of how it's filmed and shot. But very precise and it makes fun of that precision which i think is very fun well i think let's wrap up with the one movie that you're most excited for and the one movie that you would really recommend to people so the movie i'm most excited to see that i haven't seen yet is the boy and the heron because i was supposed to and it it didn't happen and i've just heard really great things and i'm ready to cry and witness what he created The film that I'm most excited for people to see on this list, there's so many, I mean, for different reasons, but I think I have to say May, December. It was my favorite film of the festival, and I just, I need people to see what Natalie Portman does in this movie specifically, because it is just so good. Her one monologue in particular, I will continue talking about for the rest of the year. Actresses actressing. You took the flip of what I was going to say. Oh. <laughs> that I am I am most excited for May-December. Natalie. Now, Natalie, uh, whenever it's released. And then also very, of course, I would like everyone to see The Boy and the Heron. But I will, I guess, to, to add other ones to talk about, I would love for everyone to see Poor Things. And I think they will. Like, a lot of people are going to see it. But I, I would like... Like, people who aren't already going to see it because it's the next Yorgos Lanthimos, I would love other people to go to it. And I want Gen Z to see sex on screen, basically. Um, Yeah. So I want the youth to go to poor things. I think for me, I've said this before, but I'm still most excited for poor things. I cannot wait. I think in recommending movies, it's hard because there's so many different vibes here. But I think one that will do the best for most audiences is Hitman. It just, I think it's the furthest thing from a festival movie that I would have expected, but people are going to love it. I mean, I would also say Anatomy of a Fall, which we just talked about on the pod and has been a festival hit. I really recommend that movie for everybody too. Well, that was our New York Film Festival recap. It was a lot of fun going through all of these movies that we saw. Bennett, I'm so glad that you got to go to the festival this year. And thank you, as always, for coming on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. I am also so happy that I went and so happy that I got to go. And like, Uh, I don't know, thinking, you know, thinking back, I'm like, I can't believe it. You know, I don't know. So I'm looking forward to future film fests. I think I've mentioned it before that my kind of my soft goal is to travel to a film fest every year or so. So I don't know. Next year, I'll try Toronto. Um, Actually, maybe next year I'll do Chicago. It's closer to Wisconsin, but Chicago Film Fest, which happens at about the same time as New York, is stacked Mm -hmm. with movies. It's uh, And a lot of stuff that did not go to New York, but it basically takes some of the highest profile premieres from all of the, the major fests before it and just lines them up. So 
thinking that 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 could be my next one. But yeah, I would love to go to New York Film Fest sometime in the future as well. And and again, it is totally doable for anyone who wants to go to it and make a make a vacation out of it. You can do it. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Bennett, for coming. Thank you all for listening as well. Feel free to rate, review, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also find bonus content at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.